We are in Isaiah chapter 6, if you would please turn there with me. And I encourage you to listen to the last couple of messages, if you haven't been here, a couple of messages uh, on civil disobedience, which we are now practicing civil disobedience by meeting uh, in contrast to the orders of the governor of California, of course, and so we uh, count the cost and we understand the risk that we're taking, but uh, we believe that uh, the church needs to be open right now during this coronavirus, and uh, we feel that this is a very safe place for people to be, and that the body of Christ needs to assemble, uh, and we're commanded to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together by the Word of God. So let God be true, and every man a liar, and it's better to obey God than to obey man. And so I encourage you to listen to the last couple of messages that are up on our uh, YouTube channel and Facebook page if you weren't here. We are in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read the first five verses, and then get right into the teaching here tonight. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two He covered His face, With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips." And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We're told here that this vision that the prophet Isaiah experienced happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, Bible scholars really have a hard time with the chronology of the book of Isaiah. And I think it's just safe to assume that the book of Isaiah is not in a chronological order, although some of the book of Isaiah is chronological, especially when you get further into the, into the uh, prophetic book and you get into the reign of Hezekiah. Uh, but we know that Isaiah, according to chapter 1, when he was introducing himself, he ministered under the reign of four kings that ruled over Judah. In Isaiah 1.1, he says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we know that he ministered as a prophet of God to four different kings that ruled over Judah. A very, very long ministry, actually. Um, and so because he said that he ministered and that he was um, prophesying to Uzziah, we know that he must have been there with Uzziah before Uzziah died, obviously ministering and prophesying to King Uzziah, because otherwise Isaiah wouldn't have said that he ministered to King Uzziah. So when we read that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, this doesn't necessarily mean that this is when he started his ministry, and there's a contradiction in the Bible. By the way, whenever you think that the Bible contradicts itself, the problem is with you and your interpretation 
interpretation, not with the Bible. Because the Bible never contradicts itself. God doesn't, He's not a God of confusion. He doesn't make mistakes and everything He says is true. So if there's a supposed contradiction, you need to do more work to determine what that contradiction, uh, how that contradiction is answered. Because the Bible does not contradict itself. It's true. And it's all true. So if He says that He ministered to King Uzziah, and then he says in the year that King Uzziah died, I had this calling of God, then we understand that this uh, is, is not a chronological book, at least for the first several chapters until you get later into uh, the prophecy here. He was a prophet to King Uzziah, uh, according to Isaiah 1.1. Um, and so his calling uh, had actually started before this. But this is when he had this great revelation of God where God took him into the throne room, as it were, in his spirit and showed him the throne of God. King Uzziah died in approximately 739 BC. He was a good king. He reigned for 52 years, one of the longest reigns, if not the longest reign out of any king of Judah. Uh, and he was a good king. However, he did sin against God. Uh, you might recall that when Uzziah uh, was at his pinnacle of power and the um, um, affluence of his kingdom was strong. The military was strong. The economy was strong. He was doing very, very well as a king, and he was a good king. He was a righteous king, according to the record of the kings and the chronicles. However, he sinned by trying to take the incense and burn it on the altar of incense in the temple, which was only permitted to be allowed uh, by the priests. And so the priests actually tried to stop him as he was taking the incense and he was going into the temple to burn incense to God, which was not the role for the king. That was the priest's job. They were separate offices. The king had one job. It was the civil job of the government, the, the, the sovereign king over the government, the sovereign affairs of the nation. The priest had the spiritual responsibilities. And then the prophet often was a third calling of God. All anointed offices, the king, the prophet, and the priest were all anointed by the Holy Spirit, separate offices, in the Old Testament. They all came together under Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. But he went in and he crossed the line that he was not allowed to cross, and he tried to offer incense in the temple in the place where only the Levites and specifically the priests, the sons of Aaron, were allowed to, to go. And so God smote him with leprosy. And uh, the leprosy started, and then it began to spread. They took him out of the temple. And because leprosy was such a serious, uh, not just a death sentence, but it was so contagious, uh, they, they actually had to seclude him and isolate him, quarantine him, as it were, for the rest of his life. Uh, he was not allowed to rule in the palace after he was smitten uh, as a punishment for him going somewhere where he wasn't supposed to go as the king. It was his pride, really, that he thought, I'm such a great king. We're, I'm so powerful. Uh, I'm, I, I've done so good for God. I want to go and I want to act like a priest. And God did not permit it. So until his death, he was quarantined in isolated solitude. And his son Jotham became the king, and they were co-regents for a period of years where Jotham was the, the king that sat on the throne, but until Uzziah died, he was still the king over Judah, although nobody had any contact with him until Uzziah died. And then Jotham took over the throne from his father. And of course, Isaiah was right there to be a prophet to Jotham as well as uh, his father Uzziah. 
So God now gives Isaiah this vision, this very unique and very special vision that very few people had in the Bible uh, of his throne, of God's throne, the very throne room of God. Again, in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. To see God on his throne would have been an unbelievable thing for the prophet. Certainly would have set him on the course from that point forward to never question that if God was sharing a message with him that he was supposed to share with the kings or with the people, he knew uh, that God was real. He saw the throne of God. It was He was no doubt taken up in the spirit in a vision, but he saw the throne of God where the seat of God's power is in heaven. We're told that uh, in heaven, he saw the Lord sitting on his throne. He was high and lifted up or highly exalted, of course. Uh, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe would be like the robe of the king and the hem or the fringe of the robe of the king. And so the, the um, train of his robe or the hem of his robe filled the whole temple. I mean, it's just his power, his glory, his majesty was unbelievable. And Isaiah is, is trying to record for us what he saw. He, he saw the very seat of God's power in heaven, much like John did uh, as he was taken up in the spirit in the book of Revelation, as Paul uh, saw the God or saw heaven, the paradise of heaven in the third heaven in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12. Paul talks about this vision that he had where he was taken up into heaven. He said it was so glorious. I can't even tell you what it was like, uh, Paul says in Second Corinthians 12, because the things I saw were unspeakable. There's no human words. There's no language that could communicate communicate what I saw. So I'm not even going to try. Uh, and so there's very, very few people who actually got to see God uh, in heaven on his throne. And Isaiah is one of them. Now we read in verse two, continuing the vision, he says, above it stood seraphim, plural for seraphs or seraphs. Seraphim is the plural. He says, above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And so these are angels. In the Bible, we have cherubim, cherubs, and we have seraphim, seraphs. And so this is, uh, this is the seraphim that are before the throne of God, while God is sitting on his throne in his temple with his train of his robe filling the temple. And, and these, these angels who are good angels. These are angels who have never sinned. These are loyal angels to God, the two-third that stayed loyal during the rebellion of Lucifer who swept one-third of the stars away. One-third of the angels fell with Lucifer. These, these are the good angels, the two-thirds that stayed with God, loyal to God, never sinned. And they are there in His presence. They have six wings. It says, with two of them, uh, the seraphim covered their face. With two of them, they covered their feet, and with two of them, they flew. Now, why would they cover their face? Because even angels, although they're without sin, they've never sinned. The good angels have never sinned. They're righteous angels. They're obedient messengers of God, messengers of light. They can't even look upon God's holiness because God is so perfect and so righteous and so holy, even the angels cannot lift their eyes 
to look at God himself. So they cover their eyes with their wings. They also cover their feet uh, in order to humble themselves. This is a prostrate uh, before God. They're covering up their feet to uh, humble themselves as it were before him. And then the uh, two other wings, they are flying in the air. It's interesting that there is a scene in heaven that is very similar in the book of Revelation. And you could turn to Revelation chapter 4, and we're going we're gonna to come back here in a minute uh, to Isaiah. But it's, it's a parallel passage in the New Testament with another uh, prophet of God, John the Apostle, who was taken up into the heavenly scene like Isaiah was hundreds of years earlier. And this is what John says that he saw. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Verse 2, he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. In other words, beautiful, bright, brilliant colors. Around the throne were 24 thrones, lesser thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so it is a little more detail given here in the book of Revelation, but it's a very similar scene to what Isaiah saw when Isaiah was taken up, obviously also in the spirit, because no man can see God in the flesh and live. And so we know that Isaiah wasn't taken uh, uh, in the flesh to heaven to see the throne room of God. He was taken in the spirit, just like John was taken in the spirit to see the throne room of God. And we're just told about the, 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 the grandeur and the glory, uh, and the brilliant lights, uh, and, and, and those who were around him, uh, that, that were there, uh, we'll see worshiping him. And we see that there's lightning, uh, you can imagine lightning and thunder before God's throne. Uh, probably just deafening lightning, uh, thunder and, and, and lightning there, blinding and deafening, uh, and voices. And he said, the seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, God doesn't have seven spirits. Seven is the number of perfection or the number of completion or the number of totality. And so when we see the number seven, and the number seven is used often in the Bible, speaking of when God does something, he usually uses the number seven to kind of put his fingerprint upon it, or sometimes the number three, which stands for the Trinity uh, in numerology. But the seven spirits of God, seven just means complete or total or perfect. And so this is the totality of the fullness of the spirit of God. When he says the seven spirits, it's the perfection of the spirit of God, the completion of the, of the spirit of God and the fullness of the Spirit of God there before the throne of God. He's there in the very presence of God himself. Now, interestingly, he continues with the vision John does in verse 6. He says, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. 
And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, verse 8, each having six wings were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So these are the seraphim that Isaiah saw hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And it's interesting, the seraphim are doing the same thing when John gets taken to heaven that they were doing hundreds, probably 700 years earlier, maybe 750 years earlier, 800 years earlier, actually, when King Uzziah died, 739 BC. John wrote the book of Revelation right around 85 AD. So you're talking an 800-year time span between Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God and John the Apostle's vision of the throne room of God. And guess what? These seraphim are still doing the same thing they were doing 800 years earlier. They're worshiping God. These six-winged creatures that John's trying to describe for us, but really our human language cannot comprehend or capture what happens in heaven. It's just beyond our understanding. We're just too limited. It's like trying to uh, understand calculus to a slug in your garden or trying to explain Shakespeare to your dog. I mean, it's just the dog can't comprehend Shakespeare no matter how much you would read to it. The slug can't understand calculus. And God is far greater to us than we are to a slug or to a dog. So it's so hard really for us to comprehend or understand the things of heaven or the things of God that are not clearly revealed to us. And even when they are revealed, sometimes we still don't understand them. But John was doing the best he could to describe what these seraphim look like. And we know that they're the seraphim, or at least we presume they are because they have the six wings. It says they're full of eyes around and within. Eyes would mean wisdom or knowledge, that these uh, these creatures have knowledge. They have wisdom from God and uh, and, and insight. Uh, and, and what are they doing? They don't rest day or night, and they're just there before God, no doubt covering their eyes, covering their feet, and flying and saying, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. No doubt this is all they ever do is sit before the throne of God and worship Him in His presence, these special seraphim. And so uh, we... Um, we, we understand this. We understand that these angels are difficult for us to, to really wrap our, uh, minds around to, 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 uh, understand them humanly. Uh, even Ezekiel, he, he saw some angels, uh, cherubim. Uh, I think it's in Ezekiel chapter 10. And it was so weird. I mean, the whole vision was so weird, but he, they're doing their best to try and take something from heaven and communicate it here to us on the earth. But the bottom line is, is that God is being worshipped day and night before His throne by these holy angels. And they are there before Him, before His throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Notice that it's three times that He mentions holy here. Three times that He mentions holy in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. The three is, is the number of God. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So you could think of it that they're worshiping God the Father holy. They're worshiping Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins before the foundation of the word holy. And they're worshiping the Holy Spirit holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Now back in Isaiah chapter 6, he continues, verse 3 again, and one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house or the temple of God was filled with smoke. And so God's throne room, heaven, is filled with His glory, the Shekinah of God, the Shekinah glory of God, His presence, His righteousness, His omniscience, His perfection, just His presence. You, every, everything in His presence cries holy because He is so righteous. He is so pure. He is light. And in Him, there is no darkness at all. It's interesting that Isaiah describes it as the temple being filled with smoke. And oftentimes in the scriptures where we see someone have an encounter with God, oftentimes there is smoke that is associated with the encounter with God's presence. Uh, For example, in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 16, as Moses was getting ready, preparing to go up to Mount Sinai to receive from God the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law, we read this about his encounter with God. Exodus 19 verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all of the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. Same as the scene in heaven, completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. It's like God brought his throne right down to Mount Sinai to meet with Moses there, just like in Revelation 4, just like in Isaiah chapter 6. But this time, instead of someone going to heaven and having a vision of heaven, God came down here to Mount Sinai to speak with Moses and to give him the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. He says, the whole mountain quaked greatly, verse 19, and when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Uh, the Lord is so holy 
that people couldn't even gaze upon his holiness or try to, you know, be a looky-loo or a rubberneck, you know, to kind of look a little bit closer or try and go up the mountain trying to see what God is like because they would have died. Because no man uh, can see God and live unless God makes an exceptional situation as he did here uh, with Moses who became the lawgiver of which all civilized society is based on the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments from this point on throughout all of human history. And so Moses was an extreme example uh, of a man of God that God had called into a special relationship with him. But it was very unique. It was very unusual. By the way, Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. He was a very humble man. Uh, and, and so anyone else that would have tried to come up the mountain would have been uh, smitten of God. They would have been uh, killed by, just by the very holiness of God because we are sinful and God is righteous. And so God can have nothing to do uh, with sinful man. But uh, it's interesting that it's the same idea of the lightning, the thunder, the smoke, the shaking when God's presence comes down and his holiness comes down. And the people were terrified of God because he was scary to them, terrified uh, of God, even as we're going to see Isaiah was and, and John was uh, also when they came into the presence of God. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Back in Revelation chapter 4, Continuing John's vision of heaven, he says in verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Glory and honor uh, and thanksgiving. Glory and honor and power. You know, these are, these are, these are things identified with heaven, identified with God. He's glorious. He's powerful. He's to be honored. He's to be thanked. And that's what they were doing, the 24 elders and the angels that were around the throne as they were worshiping him before his throne. And it's, it's always a good thing for us to be reminded. It's encouraging for us to remember that God is still on his throne. No matter what we see happening here on the earth, God is still sovereign over his creation. He spoke and the universe leapt into existence. He and the devil are not equals. That's what the Mormons actually teach. The Mormons teach that Jesus uh, and Lucifer were brothers and Lucifer was, you know, a naughty boy and, and, and Jesus was a good son. And so Elohim, the father, uh, gave the earth to Jesus and banished Lucifer to wherever. Uh, and that's how they explain it. But that's not true. Uh, Jesus uh, is, is not equal with, with Lucifer or with the devil. Jesus created all the angels. He created everything along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the triunity of God, three in one, three persons, one God. Again, can't wrap our mind around it, just like you can't communicate Shakespeare to your dog, that's okay, we'll understand the Trinity in heaven. Can't understand it now. You may have to be a quantum physicist to understand multiple dimensions and things like this, how something can exist uh, is three in one, and one uh, is three. But uh, this is uh, the scene of heaven 
as God is on his throne, and God is still on his throne. He was on his throne when Isaiah was taken up into his presence. He was on his throne when John was taken up into his presence, and God is still on his throne. And everything that's happening, as terrible as it is, everything that's happening in our world, God told us beforehand to expect that these things would happen thousands of years ago, and now we see everything happening exactly as God said they would happen in the last days. He's sovereign over his creation. He is sovereign over everything, and he is seated on his throne. Even now, he's seated on his throne. Again, back in Isaiah chapter 6, here is the response of Isaiah to this experience that he has of being placed into the very presence of the throne room of God. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. So I said, Isaiah the prophet speaking, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." He had the very unusual and the rare opportunity opportunity and privilege to have a vision of God on his throne. And really, no doubt, this set the course of his ministry. As a matter of fact, Isaiah was, was such a special prophet of God that after his calling that it's recorded here, God showed him everything really about the Messiah. I mean, as we're going to go through the book of Isaiah uh, over, over the next months and, and maybe a couple of years, it's 66 chapters long, um, we'll see that God showed Isaiah so much about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ. Um, Isaiah is the one that understood that it would be a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that the virgin shall conceive and bring forth the son. And that way it's going to be a sign. When a virgin gets pregnant and a child comes into the world and the, and it's of the line of David, King David and the tribe of Judah, understand this is the one that was prophesied to come, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. This is Isaiah that God showed these truths to about the virgin birth, about him coming to take the throne of his father David. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, unto us a child is born, unto us is a a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called the everlasting father, the prince of peace and all the rest. Isaiah saw and God showed him about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about Jesus not being uh, uh, one who was someone that was um, in his appearance. He was not attractive. He was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted uh, with grief and uh, it talks about his crucifixion, uh, that they, uh, you, they pierced him, we're told, there in Isaiah chapter 53. His death, that he would be a substitutionary atonement for the sins of the world, that God the Father says that God was pleased to crush him, and that he would die, and that he would come back from the dead. All of this is in Isaiah chapter 53. So God showed Isaiah his virgin birth, talked about that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, talked about his life, about his ministry, about his uh, crucifixion. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Isaiah tells us uh, 700 and some odd years before Christ was even born about this one who would come and who 
would die. Not only did Isaiah, was Isaiah shown his virgin birth, his kingdom that would come, his uh, atonement, his resurrection, substitutionary atonement and his resurrection, but also his millennial reign, that he would come back to the earth and he would rule and reign over the earth for 1,000 years. Isaiah talks about this in his writings and also about the eternal kingdom that Jesus would be the one that would rule forever and ever and ever. So Isaiah had a very rare opportunity to come into the presence of God. And once he encountered the presence of God, he was a changed man forever. And God used him in a very significant, mighty way out of all of the Old Testament prophets. Really, nobody saw as much about Jesus as Isaiah, the prophet, was shown. You you see that as he is now in the presence of God, Uh, his response is, I am a mess. I am completely undone now that he comes into the presence of God. It's interesting if you read the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, he's rebuking the people of Israel, the people of Judah. You remember last week when we were studying the woes, you know, he's saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, over and over and over, pronouncing judgment upon the people that were wicked in Judah at the time. And he lists all of their sins. And no doubt, he thought he was special. He was the prophet of God. He thought, I'm not doing all these wicked things like all of these other people that God's going to pour out his wrath upon because they're not repenting of their sins. And yet he comes into the very presence of God and all of a sudden, it's not woe are you, but woe is me. I'm, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Because once you come into the presence of God, you have an understanding of how holy he is and how wicked you and I really are. We're wicked. Our flesh is so uh, defiled and so deceitful. In me, that is in my flesh, no good thing dwells, Paul the Apostle said in Romans chapter 7. We are a mess and we think we're better than we really are. We think we're better than other people until we come into the presence of God and then we realize, oh my goodness, I am undone. I don't even deserve to be here. I'm unclean. And that is the proper response when we have a true encounter with the living God who is holy and righteous and true and he is light and pure and we are not. We as humans have a tendency to judge ourselves along other people's light. So, you know, we think, well, I'm better than that guy. I'm not as bad as the serial killer. I'm not as bad as a rapist. I'm not as bad as a murderer. I'm not as bad as a thief or, you know, a carjacker or whatever. And so we begin to look down on others and we begin to think highly of ourselves and we begin to think, I'm not that bad. Actually, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty righteous compared to all of you people. And that's the danger is that when you begin to serve the Lord, you begin to really uh, perhaps even be used of the Lord, then you begin to think of yourself more highly than you ought to instead of realizing that we are not to judge ourselves on the light of others, we're supposed to judge ourselves based on the light of God who is perfect and who is true and who is holy and we are not. We're not to judge ourselves by one another. We are to judge ourselves by Jesus Christ. And as we judge ourselves by the standard of righteousness of Jesus Christ, that standard is sinless perfection. Therefore, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because we're all sinners 
All are sinners in this world. There's none righteous, no, not one. And then we have a real understanding of who we are. It's only God's grace. It's only by His mercy that any of us are forgiven and that any of us are saved. And the only righteousness that we possess is the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us. Our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. It's only the righteousness of Christ that is true righteousness, and we don't have that. It has to be given to us by God, robed in the righteousness of Christ. It reminds me of the story of the Pharisee that thought highly of himself, and Jesus tells us this story of this Pharisee in Luke in chapter 18. In verse 9, we read this, He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Legalism, self-righteousness, holier than thou. Verse 10, he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus would tell the Pharisees, you do err because you compare yourselves by yourselves. You judge yourselves based on one another. That's not the standard. It doesn't matter if you're better than everybody that's in San Quentin prison, uh, who's a terrible, you know, uh, criminal or whatever, or even your neighbors or whatever you think of yourself. That's not the comparison because our righteousness is as filthy rags when we get into the very presence and the holiness of the light of God. It was only the man that was humble that wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, uh, but he just he just fell upon the mercy of God. Be merciful to me, a sinner, the man says, versus the self-righteous, holier-than-thou, legalistic Pharisee. In Luke in chapter 7, in verse 36, we read this. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, she was no doubt a prostitute, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet And she anointed them with fragrant oil. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is that is touching him, for she is a sinner. Again, no doubt she was a prostitute and they knew it. Verse 40, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. He says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors, 
One owed 500 days' wages, or denarii, and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman, and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time that I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Another example of Jesus showing his deity in that only God can forgive someone their sins. And here Jesus forgave this woman her sins, just like he forgave the woman that was caught in adultery her sins. Where are your accusers, woman? Uh, they're gone. He says, neither do I accuse you. I forgive you. In other words, go forth and sin no more. Just like the paralyzed man that they dropped down uh, by taking the roof off of the house because it was too crowded in the house and they wanted to bring their friend who was paralyzed. And they dropped the man in front of him on a cot. Paralyzed man, been paralyzed all his life. And uh, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And they, the Pharisees say, who do you think you are to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, so that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your cot, rise up and walk. And the man was healed immediately and he stood up and he took his cot. This man had been paralyzed for 30 something years and he stood up and he walked out to where Jesus was proving to them he was God because he forgave their sins and he raised this man up from his paralyzed condition. Again, the problem is, is that we compare ourselves with one another instead of compare, comparing ourselves to Jesus Christ and God the Father who is perfect and without sin. In Exodus in chapter 3, as Moses was being called of God to be the great deliverer of his people Israel from Egypt, we read this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. This is Moses' encounter with God when he was called into the ministry. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he had led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. In other words, it's not burned up with the fire. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the burning bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Every time you have an encounter with God in the Scriptures, no matter who the people are, they are uh, terrified of him. They're, They're afraid because he's so pure. He's so holy. He's so righteous. He's a consuming fire, the Scriptures say. And so Moses, the man of God, the humblest man who ever lived, he was afraid to look upon God. And God tells him, take off your sandals for the ground, the very ground that you're standing on, wherever God is, becomes consecrated, becomes holy ground. For this is holy ground because God is here. In Daniel chapter 10, we have another example of someone, a prophet of God, coming into an encounter of the very presence of God. In Daniel chapter 10 and verse 5, I'll read this to you. Daniel says, I lifted up my eyes and I looked and behold, a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of euphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them. So they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me. For my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Daniel couldn't even stand in the presence. And I believe this is Jesus Christ, as we're going to see here in a minute in Revelation, I believe that this is a vision of Jesus, again, a theophany, a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, that he came before him and he revealed himself in his glory uh, to Daniel. And Daniel could not even stand in his presence. And Daniel was a godly man. Daniel was a righteous man. Daniel was a good man. Uh, there's really nothing that's said about Daniel ever sinning. Daniel and Joseph, there's very few people in the Bible that don't mention uh, or record any sin uh, in the scriptures of them. Uh, Daniel's one of them. And so Daniel, although he was a prophet, he was righteous. He was a good man. He couldn't even stand. He just collapsed in the presence of Jesus. You notice that his buddies all took off because they were terrified when Jesus appeared. Even though they couldn't see it, they fled. People are afraid. Jesus is not your buddy who hangs out with you. And you and Jesus are pals with your arm around Jesus and his arm. You know, uh, the church has made it too common, too too commonplace. When Jesus says, I call you friend, that doesn't mean you can call him your friend. It means he calls you his friend. It's the greater calling the lesser friend. You call him Lord. You call him Messiah. You call him Savior. You call him King of all the earth. But you better be careful if you try and demean Jesus down to your human level that you and Jesus are pals who just hang out on Saturday night and play video games or something. Jesus is God. And if you come into his presence, you will recognize that you and he are not the same. He's holy. He's righteous. He's pure. He's perfect. And you and I are not Every single time anyone comes into the presence of God, this is the reaction. This is the response. Again, 
when John saw Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, and I mention it often, it's not the book of Revelations, plural. It's not the book of Revelations, although there are many revelations of prophecies and visions. It's not the book of Revelation. It's singular. Or Revelations, it's, it's singular. It's the book of Revelation, not plural, not Revelations, because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 and verse 1 gives us the title of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So we get the title of the book from the first chapter and the first verse. It's not plural, revelations. It's revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. And then we read this in verse 10, as he really got a revelation of Jesus Christ. He says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as as if refined in the furnace." And his voice was as the sound of many waters. That's an exact description of what Daniel saw and who Daniel saw back in Daniel chapter 10. If you go back and look, it's parallel. So no doubt Jesus appeared to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 as Jesus is appearing here. Notice also that Jesus, who's speaking in verse 11, again declares his deity. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Those are titles of God, God the Father. And so, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did over and over and over again. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father before Abraham was, I am. I and my father are one. I mean, how much more could he have said to say that he's God? I'm the alpha, the omega, the first and the last. Only God can take these titles. Jesus is God. And we see this appearance, this vision that he appeared to John. And remember, John was his friend. John was his friend. John hung out with him. John was actually the one who laid his head on his chest at the Last Supper. Uh, and, and so, you know, now John sees him in his glory and John is just like a mess because it's like, it's like this Jesus is not the same guy who was, uh, the one who was the friend of sinners here on the earth who was meek and lowly and humble of heart. He's glamorous. He's glorified. He's magnificent. He's powerful. He's righteous. He's holy. He's glowing, as it were, like fire. It says here, he was, uh, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined by fire. His voice was as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. This is Jesus in all of his glory. His glory was veiled when he took on a human body and he lived here for 33 years on this earth and dwelt among us in order to atone for the sins of the whole world. Now he is glorified and he is magnified. 
and John has seen him. And, and John says this in verse 17. Remember, John was his friend here on the earth. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. There he goes again with a title of God. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys or the authority of death and of Hades. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And he goes on from there. And so even John, the beloved apostle, who was one of the closest friends of Jesus when Jesus was here on the earth, he, he was just, um, he fell at his feet as a dead man when Jesus appeared to him in all of his glory. Moses had this reaction when God appeared in the burning bush, the great I am, I am. Uh, who I am, God told Moses in the burning bush. Daniel, when he encountered God, fell as a dead man. John fell as, fell as a dead man. Isaiah, when he encountered God, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people. Woe, woe, woe to me. Not woe to you, woe to me. Because he came into the presence of God. You remember when Jesus appeared to Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, he appeared as a blinding light and he knocked Saul to the ground and he said, Saul, Saul, why per persecutest thou me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou hast persecuted. And he was blind because of the brightness and the glory and the light of Jesus. So when you have an encounter with Jesus, it's not just going to be you and Jesus again hanging out like, like, like one of your college buddies or something. He's the God of the universe universe. He's holy. He's righteous. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And you and I are not. In Luke chapter 5, even when uh, Peter met Jesus and Peter recognized who Jesus was, you remember Peter's reaction, Luke chapter 5 verse 8. So when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish what they had just taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, whose name would be changed to Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men or you will become a fisher of men. And so even Peter, with Jesus being veiled, his glory, his radiant glory being veiled in humanity, when he recognized who Jesus was, he, he was just undone. He says, go away, depart from me. I'm a wicked man. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. John Calvin is quoted as saying, men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. You come in the presence of God, you realize you're not all that. You're nothing compared to God. We're nothing. And God chooses to use the foolish things of the world, like you and I, to confound the wise. Jesus would tell them that were there when he was here on the earth, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He told them this in the Sermon on the Mount. They're thinking, how could we exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? These guys are so legalistic. They're perfect. And yet Jesus is saying, well, they're not quite perfect because they're still sinners. 
And so, you know, your, your righteousness has to be more than theirs if you think you're going to see the kingdom of heaven. And the reality is, as Jesus was saying, no one's going to enter the kingdom of heaven apart from me. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As we enter into the light of Christ and we recognize our sinfulness and the darkness of our flesh and of our hearts, we agree that no flesh shall be justified in the flesh in the sight of God. No flesh will be justified. It is only the Spirit that makes us um, justified, the Spirit of God that dwells within us when we repent and when we're born again and we surrender our lives to Christ and we accept Christ as our Lord, our Savior, and our King There's one more uh, scene of heaven that I want to look at real quick here in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, and we read this, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel is having a vision of the throne of God, and he says this in Daniel 7, verse 9, I watched until thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were opened. Daniel is having a vision of the heavenly scene of God, the throne room of God, and he sees God on his throne, and there's, you know, hundreds of millions of angels there before him. A thousand times ten thousand and ten thousand times ten thousand were before him. You're talking hundreds of millions of angels before the throne of God, worshiping God on his throne. He continues in verse 13. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like a son of man. See, remember before he was talking about the Ancient of Days seated on the throne. That's God the Father, the Ancient of Days. Now he sees one like the Son of Man. This is Jesus Christ coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So you have the God, the Father on his throne, the Ancient of Days and all of his glory and all of his power. And then you have Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who comes before his Father, and the Father gives the Son what? A kingdom and a rule over every tribe, every tongue, every nation, forever and ever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his kingdom will never pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. This is the Old Testament, and Jesus came in perfect fulfillment of these prophecies. We don't have time to go to Revelation 5, but I encourage you, go read Revelation chapter 5 later, and you'll see, again, more details given about that scene in heaven that John saw as God was showing him uh, the future of what would come with the tribulation period, the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, and all the rest, and then ultimately 
the coming of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 to come back and judge the devil and Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all of those who take the mark of the beast to cast them into the lake of fire and for Jesus to rule and reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem and then to reign for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. In Matthew chapter 24, and this is where we're going to have to end, Jesus is telling a parable about his coming back. Matthew chapter 24 is the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is talking all about the last days and about the signs of the times and about his return. And Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 42. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus wants us to be ready that he could come back any time. He says, I'm going to come back in an hour you do not expect. It's going to be like a thief breaking into a house. If the master of the house had known what hour the thief was come, he would have watched over, not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you too be ready. The Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. He continues with this parable. Uh, he says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. So this is to you and I. If we're Christians here tonight, we're servants of Jesus Christ. We're servants of Jesus Christ. He's our master. And so he says, blessed is that servant whom his master, Jesus, when he comes, when he returns, will find so doing. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus came back like right this very second and we were studying the Bible, talking about Jesus and talking about him coming back? Because we don't know when he's going to come back. He says, no one knows the day or the hour. I'm going to come at a time you're not expecting me. But he says, blessed is that servant who is serving when I return. And so the only way to know that you're going to be that servant who's serving when he returns is to just serve your whole life because it could happen any day or it could happen in 500 years. I don't think so. I think it's going to be much sooner. I don't think our planet could last another 500 years with what's happening here. But he says this, he says, but if that evil servant, verse 48, says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. In other words, it's taking a long time for Jesus to come back. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour that he's not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the evil servant is not looking for the return of Jesus Christ. He's too consumed with the things of this world. And he's not serving the Lord. And he's not looking for the Lord's return. And that is not who we want to be. We don't want to be the example here of the evil servant who thinks my master's delaying is coming. It's going to be a long time before Jesus ever comes back. That's not our attitude. Our heart should be Jesus Christ's return is imminent. It could happen any minute. 
It could happen any moment, any second, Jesus could return. That's how he's wanted his church for 2,000 years to look at his coming to where every generation throughout church history would be looking for Jesus Christ's return and will be serving the Lord faithfully because it might be today that he comes back for his bride. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, Email us at C-O-A-H podcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapig, California.